Hello, this is Andrew Smith. You are listening to The Sirens of Audio. G'day audiophiles, this is the Sirens of Audio, the show that explores the universe of Doctor Who in the audio medium. My name's Dwayne. And my name is Philip. G'day <laughs> Dwayne, g'day audiophiles. Oh, g'day Philip. What are you always trying, you're always trying to make me chuckle at the intros, are you? Well, I just like trying to copy your lovely radio <laughs> tones. <laughs> oh, very good. Today is uh, an, another exciting episode of we've got randomoids and not only that philip but i don't think you even realize this but this episode is your 100th episode with the sirens of audio so congratulations you made it thank you no i hadn't realized that way there you go 100 episodes Uh, how did you talk me into this dwayne (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, my, and my marriage has maintained hold together my wife has put up with it all so patiently thinking it has to end soon but it hasn't yep. yet <laughs> yeah my marriage is okay too for now yeah we'll see how we go when we get to two three four hundred we'll see how we'll we go see. oh well, how exciting so looking forward to the two stories that we're going to discuss tonight a companion chronicles and a main range from the 100 and 100 to 200 uh, which we haven't heard too many times before, Philip. So very uh, excited to talk about those. We also have a special guest coming on to talk about uh, Moonflesh, and that is the author of Moonflesh, Mark Morris. Yes, I'm really looking forward to chatting with him and hearing how he came up with some of his ideas and, yeah, a, bit, a little bit about him. Yeah, he hasn't written a lot for Big Finish. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what he has to say about this story. Absolutely. But before we do, do you know what, Philip? What, Dwayne, happens for my 100th episode? (laughs) We're still going to do it, even for your 100th. It's a rabbit hole. Let's go. (laughs) Philip, this time I want to talk about the recent announcement of a lot of Big Finish's older stories going on sale. Did you see that notice come through recently? We're not going on sale, a permanent drop. Permanent price drop. Permanent price drop. It's not a sale, it's actually a permanent price drop of almost 100 episodes, I think. Very, very exciting stuff. And I was thinking of our recent guest, Alicia, who's just started the Big Finish journey only a couple of years ago, so has a lot to catch up on. So this makes it easier for new people coming along to get into the ranges and... Uh, and uh, catch up with everything that they have uh, missed out on all these years, Philip. Yep, certainly. And as, as it's moving into that, I think it's up to, what, 150 for the main 150, range now? 150, yep. 150. So, I mean, that, that first 100 been available for quite a long time, actually. It's been a couple of years at least. So it has taken a while to, to do the next 50. So I'm, I'm glad they are, because I think, I really think the 100 to 200 mark aren't explored very much at all. 
Yeah. And um, yeah, I love to. Yeah, we're going to talk about Moonflesh soon. It was really nice pop- popping into the era because I really haven't gone back there, and I'm really enjoying popping back and going to stuff and hearing what's out there, and it's better than I remember it. Yeah, and even though I've dipped into the Companion Chronicles uh, before, when they, I picked all of them up when they were on a previous sale, and but I still haven't had a chance to listen to them all yet. So this one we're going to discuss tonight is one that that uh, I haven't heard before. Yeah, so I think the, the price choice making things available for people, which is just, I think, wonderful. Yes. Um, and as I said, I mean, people are always nervous about dipping back to the early stuff. I think this makes life much easier for them because it's, it's, it's a really, yeah, they're great prices now. Hopefully, Big Finish still continues to make a bit of money because, I mean, it's important Big Finish keeps selling stuff and people keep buying it to generate the new stuff. We wouldn't be getting that without it. That brings me to my next point, mm. and that is I had a feeling as I was reading through the excited announcement that all those titles were permanently dropping in price, I had the sneaking suspicion that we might get the little announcement at the end of that email, which said that um, the new releases were going to be increasing as of November. Did you catch that, Philip? No, I missed this. They, they... There you go. They did a, did a very good job at that. I thought, oh, I wonder if they're going to try and sneak this announcement in right at the end. And that's exactly what happened. So as of November, uh, the cost of new releases are going to go up. So uh, not exactly sure what that means at this stage uh, as to how much it will be, um, whether it will be significant or not. I don't know. But as far as the cost of new releases goes, Philip, uh, do you think that might tend to be restrictive for people who are following the new releases? Uh, because I know we've the, the the biggest price increase for me personally was the was the postage increases a few years ago. So I had to make a decision uh, about physical media, and I made that decision based on uh, the fact that it was just ridiculously expensive to yeah. uh, to um, to purchase hard copies and get them posted out. Um, so I sort of rearranged my collection and now it's and now I'm quite content and quite happy with with download only. So do you think that a price increase might uh, make us think about what collections we dip into? I, I think people are always having to dis- make those decisions anyhow. Um, I, I mean, I think Big Finish have <laughs> a lot of places like Cadbury and um, you know, different food prices. They, they, they sort of didn't increase their prices, but they dropped the sizes down. And what about killer to, pythons? Don't forget the killer pythons. Well, killer pythons, yes, yeah, so that's very Australian too. I'm trying, I'm trying to think. Was Cadbury's? I know Cadbury's in the UK. I'm not sure whether that's um, equivalent in America um, or Germany. Like we can say, um, we we made the charts in Germany last week. <laughs> if you're interested in the podcasts, yeah. um, very so good. Thank you to our German listeners, whoever you are out there. <laughs> um, but yeah, popular enough to hit the charts in Germany. So I mean, I do know that a lot of food manufacturers have been reducing the size of their products and charging the same price. And in some ways, Big Finish was kind of doing that. That the, the four CD box sets went to three. And I did notice, I'm not sure you saw, that the two new box sets have been announced for Paul McGann, which look really, ex- I must say, I'm really excited for the two new box sets. But there's only three stories per box set, not four, which all the yeah. previous box sets have been four stories per box set. So I think Big Finish have been covering some of their costs by doing that. Can I say, I do not begrudge Big Finish doing this. They have not had a price increase for ages. I can't even think when the last price increase was. And cost of living, cost of production, the you know paying the actors, and you know the actors are amazing and doing wonderful jobs. Yeah. Um, it, it, 
producing new material is always expensive. And, and the reality is, I mean, we know that they get hit with lots of people illegally downloading. Um, you know, if, if, if the, you know, just half the people who are illegally downloading actually bought the productions, then they could probably half the prices of, of what they're putting out because they'd be in, they'd be, the sales would be so high. So, yeah, p- part of the unfortunate cost for the people who are doing the right thing is the fact that, because the people are doing the wrong thing, that it, it means that there's some price increases that have to happen. But, you know, when you're getting the quality of the productions we're getting, we're getting, you know, having organized conventions, um, trying to organize the new cast members into to come out to Australia, it is far more expensive. They have an expectation of a lot more money to be paid. The old classic companions and doctors, you know, you, you put them up for seven days and a couple of air flights and took them out a couple of places. Um, and, I, you know, and we still paid them, a reasonable per diem and that. But every time we've tried to organise new series people to come out here, the expectation is you know, ten times. Ten what times, put, wow. Mm, yeah, some people were. <laughs> okay. I can tell you some stories, but I won't tell you some stories. Uh, yeah, so some, some, people, some people were demanding in terms of expectation for flights and things was just beyond what we could possibly imagine. And I suspect Big Finish are being hit with that too. Um, and, I, and of course they're negotiating with agents and, and it's only fair and right. You know, these are performers, these, this is their living. Um, and certainly they're new series actors who are in high demand. They can charge a lot more and rightly so. So I'm not begrudging anyone earning their living. This, this is a job. It's not for the love of it. It's not fan-based. It's not like us and our podcast. We don't charge anything and we don't make anything. We do it because we love this. And, and we're so blessed and privileged by some of the things that happen as well. So yeah. I don't begrudge it either. But it's expensive to make. And so I understand that this has to happen. And there'll be people who will whinge and complain. And I you know, I don't follow those sort of people on Twitter. So I'm, I'm sure there'll be a Twitter storm at some point. I won't notice it because I ignore that. <laughs> um, but yeah, if... As long as we keep getting the quality of productions we're getting, then you, you've got to expect every couple of years there should be a price increase because that's how life works. What do you think, Dwayne? Are you okay with this? Yeah, I'm fine with it. Uh, whatever business decision they have to make, they have to make. And if that means that I can't afford certain ranges, well, then I have to pick and choose and wait for those ranges for a few years before they go on sale and I'll be able to catch up. But it's very, very difficult. I'm very... <laughs> I don't know what I'll be. I'll be selling stuff to get my big finish fix. I know that because I like to get all the new, all the new stuff. So you know what it's like, Philip. We've yeah. got to have it. Got to have we it. We do. And yeah, can I say as as we keep talking to the writers, the producers, the actors, we know how hard they work. We know how much passion they have. They deserve a good wage. The, yeah, the the worker de- the worker deserves his wages, and I'm fully supportive of that. Um, yeah, as much as I might complain and grumble because it's my money. Um, <laughs> I, I always feel like I'm getting... I don't feel like I'm even suffering. I'm not getting value for money. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Let's jump out of the rabbit hole and we'll talk about the first in our We've Got Randomoids selections. That is the Companion Chronicles, The Forbidden Time. So let me read a blurb for that before we go into a trailer. And the blurb is, it's a second Doctor story. Uh, it was originally published in 2011, March 2011. Written by David Locke, starring Annika Wills, with Fraser Hines making an appearance as Jamie as well. And the blurb reads, Time Walkers have descended upon the Earth. This alien race, known as the Vist, has claimed an area of time for itself. Any species entering into the immediate future will pay the most terrible forfeit. The human race is in a state of panic, but one woman knows the truth. 
Her name is Polly Wright, and she visited that future many years ago with the Doctor, Jamie and Ben. She has stepped into the forbidden time, and this is her story. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, The Companion Chronicles, The Forbidden Time. This is a recorded announcement broadcast on the wide band telepathic frequency. Please, just let me through. Please, I need to get into the building. Within seconds, I could hear the things on the other side of the wall skittering. They were searching for subjects. Penalties will be enforced if you progress further in time. How does it do that? Where do you get it? Professor Brett made it. Who? Oh, you don't know him. He was who I was working for when I met the Doctor. All civilizations are advised to detour around this area of time. He was going to try again when I noticed a light flashing on the console. That pretty much always meant trouble. Now, I've doubled back to the TARDIS ducked into a house or shop or something and sneak back, trying to see what's become of you. This is your first and last warning. Polly, I think this is it. I think it... What in God's name are they? Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com So, Philip, did you remember this story? It's interesting, I, I do remember it. But it is kind of surrounded by two extraordinary stories in the Companion Chronicles. Um, And so at the time, it didn't really make a mark for me. So before this is is a story called The Perpetual Bond, which is a Peter Purvis one, which is kicking off a whole new trilogy of stories with a new companion, um, which... Very highly regarded trilogy. Highly regarded. And we we have talked about it before. We've talked about the trilogy a bit beforehand. It's followed by Sentinels of the New Dawn, which is an amazing... Um, Liz Shaw adventure. So there's these two really huge standout Companion Chronicles on both sides. And this whole season, at this, at this point in time, Companion Chronicles is just getting better and better and more and more extraordinary. And they're coming out once a month because I'm subscribing to them every month. Um, and I must admit, when I first listened to this one, it kind of fell through the cracks because, as I said, it, it was part of a range of amazing classics before and after. And as I said, I just mentioned both sides. You can actually go further on both sides, and even more um, pretty stunning classics by different people. And so this one didn't quite feel up to the same mark. And so actually going back and listening to it by itself, not as part of the sequence, was a really good thing. And I'll talk about that a bit more in a moment. But but what did you think, Dwayne? Because you just you just bounced straight into it, didn't you? Oh yes, because I'm I I hadn't heard this before, so it was the very first time. The cover is intriguing. We've just seen that. And I want to talk about the cover because your background, for those who are watching us on YouTube, Philip, you've got a background that is slightly different to the cover of the story, but you can see the similarity. So I want to know about that. Yeah. But the first thoughts I had about this story when I listened through was kind of a feeling of, oh, darn it, you know, because I had written with a fellow co-writer 20 years ago, a story, not not a Doctor Who story, but a story that was very, very similar to this. And in fact, if you look at my Twitter handle, it's called, uh, my Twitter handle is based on that story. It's called Earth Shadows. So it was about people who could walk into the shadow dimensions, which are very, very similar thought uh, to 
what we have here in the Forbidden Time. The uh, the aliens are very very different, but it's very interesting because um, you know when you think about the collective consciousness, very often writers will come up with similar ideas having no direct influence on each other whatsoever, uh, and it's it's an interesting concept that was actually brought out in the um, the never ending story. Believe it or not, that that kids book. If you read the novel version of that, it's fantastic. But um, yeah, so that that was my immediate thought. Uh, I always love Annika Wills's voice. She's incredible yeah. to listen to. She's very, very soothing. I thought Jamie was uh, not not in there very much. It was almost like a cameo for Jamie uh, in the story. But yeah, very, very interesting stuff. I love the sci-fi comments. It was easy to understand. Uh, and of course, the Companion Chronicles, they're two-parters, so they don't go for too long. And she's she's not doing it like she's narrating a book, but she's she's doing it she's telling this story to an audience uh which is an interesting way of doing it as well so i guess as you go through the companion chronicles they find more and more interesting ways to narrate these stories that aren't just straight narration yeah no spot on and that, that, that's what i'm saying it was always very creative how they they got around it um in this case you know phrase well annika wills i'm pretty sure at this stage was living overseas and so was rarely around to actually right. record and so when she was back in England, she did this one and she did the this Companion Chronicle for the next season as well. They had to do two at the same time. Um, and Fraser Hines wasn't even able to come into studio. And so that's why, I mean, all his part is done on a tape recorder, which she plays throughout throughout the story. So he does his own first-person narrative talking to Polly on a tape recorder, which is sort of a, a conceit to get a second voice in because Companion Chronicles generally have two voices. There's a few that only have one, Mary Tam, does it one one spectacular one all by herself? Generally, they they cast two people and they 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 designed to be low budget, understandably so, and different you know slightly different um, feel to them. But it, it therefore makes them a lot more creative. So in this case, it's just a recording that happens. Yeah, I think you're right. Annika Wills has the most extraordinary voice. I think having met her, uh, we had a whovention in Australia that she came out to. Were you at that one? Did you meet her? No, Annika? no, I didn't. Okay. Um, She's the most extraordinary lady, has some extraordinary beliefs in a lot of strange things, um, and yeah, very very at one with nature and the earth, and very sixties, very yeah, very sixties, <laughs> and she's she's carried it through, but yeah, fascinating woman, fascinating life, but as you say, beautiful voice, extraordinary voice. I've got and to say, I loved her enthusiasm in the extras. It was lovely to hear her being excited about. She said it'd been a couple of years since she'd done anything for big finish and she was excited about that and because she was doing the voice of the aliens too she was she was really proud of the voice that she'd done for the aliens and um yeah it was it was lovely to get that enthusiasm and uh i i hope we get i hope we can get more from her yes i'm, I'm certainly hoping that we yeah we should still get a lot more from her because she's certainly more than capable yeah so you mentioned my background Yes, um, yes, let's talk about that. Yeah, so, so the Vist um, are described in terms of being greyhounds with extraordinary long legs. And the author, um, he got the idea from this painting by um, Salvador Dali, which is elephants on extraordinary long legs. And so if you actually look at the cover, you can see that the, the um, art, cover artist has done very similar things. Very similar, yeah. Yeah. Now, it's interesting because David Locke, this is the only story he wrote for Big Finish. Now, you're our re you're our resident researcher, Philip. Did you find anything out about David? I, you know what, I have tried to track him down. I actually tried to make contact with him. I couldn't find him. Right. 
And so um, I did drop a couple of emails to a couple of people trying to say, do you know who this person is and how we can contact him? Um, and I had, was, didn't hear back from anyone. So I have no idea who David Lockie is. Do you have any ideas at all? That's why I was asking you, Philip. Yep. You, you know more than I do. Yeah. So anyhow, so I, this, this, as far as I know, actually, it's always a bit hard to tell because I, I said, use the Big Finish website. Uh, he didn't do anything else on the Big Finish website. But that being said, that has taken down... Um, all so the discontinued steer. rages. Yeah. yeah, so the discontinued rages are gone off the website. So yeah. he may have written for one of them, but I can't find any evidence that he did. And I've done um, my research in the Big Finish Companion, and they don't mention the author either. So I sort of, you know, I've, I've checked a few different reference books. I've checked a different few different websites. Um, I emailed some people. As far as I know, person doesn't exist. So David Locke, if you're listening, if anyone knows David Locke, <laughs> um, would love to know some more information. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be great. Um, you know, why is this the only one that he wrote? Um, because, yeah, as you say, it's it's a it's a good solid story. It's got that dreadful moment where Ben and I, I'd forgotten this happened where Ben is killed, and that was actually quite a shocking moment. The whole way it's described mm. and the emotion that Polly is able to convey, and even the Doctor conveys, it's actually very powerful. It is. And, yeah, and you know, having now had you know, visions of you know, the Marvel Universe and people dissipating and all that, that's certainly what was in my, my mind as Ben was touched, he disintegrated and you know, turned to dust and everything. It was a horrific image and quite terrifying. And then, and then similarly, so thinking, okay, we're obviously going to fix that somehow. But at the time, and I was actually thinking the emotional distress that Polly would have been going through. And Doctor Who doesn't deal with emotions well in the early classic years. But of course, this was actually able to convey some of that. And so it was actually nice getting a bit of emotion and a bit of, you know, well, how would how would Polly have reacted to have actually watched Ben die? Well, just on the author, the script editor was Jack Rayner and John Dorney, if you notice. Though John Dorney may have been training up as script editor at the time. So, I don't know, maybe one of those two would know who David Locke is. Yeah, actually, didn't, I didn't message John. I might... I might, I might message John and see if I can find out some more because I'm quite interested. I mean, it was interesting having two script writers. I mean, that, that in itself was unusual. So it could have been that the script had a lot of issues along the way, maybe, and that's maybe why he didn't yeah. come back. Yeah. Um, not, nothing like that. I mean, because the, the author wasn't at the after, you know, in the interviews at the end, so he was, didn't go in for the day, um, which you know, often the author is in there, but in this case, the author wasn't there. Um, Lisa Bauman, you know, tended to direct most of these companion chronicles. She has a particular great relationship with all the original cast members, and once again, you know, does a good solid job. So, if this script had had difficulties along the way, I don't think you can really tell. So, yeah. no, you definitely can't. It's no. a it's a high recommend from me. And it was, it was nice just getting your message through in terms of oh yeah, okay, during the week I think oh really loved it. Oh yeah, and then I thought then I thought oh is he being sarcastic? <laughs> I really go, oh, no, he's not being sarcastic. So I was just double-checking the message. Oh, that's really good. Because as I said, that, that was before I listened to it again. You you don't recall my messages with stuff I don't love? I'll oh, tell you straight. No. <laughs> I don't no, beat around I the bush. do know. But, you, I mean, you know I rave on about the Companion Chronicles an awful yeah. lot. And I think sometimes it annoys you. <laughs> my, no, it does not annoy me. Oh, good. It, okay. it, it, I just think, oh, man, I wish I could just get time to just get into them and, and go through them all in one big hit. But... Uh, there's so many other things to listen to. I just haven't had a chance, and it's definitely a range I want to catch up with because it is, I it it is the most inventive range I think. Yeah, and they've been reduced now. Is three ninety nine? They've now all been reduced down to. Oh, if that, 
if that. So, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I strongly encourage people if you haven't got it. Um, yeah, it's it's. I can't say I love it when we inspire people to listen to something. We got a message through during the week about circular time. Someone bought circular time based yeah, on. Yeah, they purchased it. Yeah, they thought, oh, this was so good, I bought it, and so yeah, oh yeah, good. Fantastic. Um, That's what is. we want. So yeah, as I said, it it didn't stand to add to me at the time because this season is full of high hitting, fantastic ones. This is a good solid companion chronicle, surrounded by even better companion chronicles. But I really enjoyed it. Before we move on, this is one other thing that has struck me about this story. Um, I've been doing a lot of work with First Nations people at the moment. My uh, my current work, uh, I've you know, working with the you know, Australian Aboriginal people, but the First Nations people is what we are tending to call them at the moment. Um, and one of the concepts in this is about owning time. And as you listen to, as a listener, the whole concept of owning time seems utterly stupid. Like, how can you own time? It's a, it's a nonsense concept, which I think as a listener, we really got, got the idea really well of. With the work I'm now doing with some of Australia's First Nations people, is they feel the same concept about owning land. How can you possibly own land? Owning land is a stupid concept. Land yeah. belongs to everyone. It's for everyone's good. It's to be nurtured and protected. So a lot of the concepts that are being discussed here about time, I've realized really apply to non-Western people in terms of land. And it actually helped me actually think through a lot of the concepts because, you know, I, I own my house, I own my land, I'm protective about this million-dollar-plus property now, which is, you know, I've become a millionaire because I own a piece of land in Sydney, which is ridiculous. Um, and, and we're very, very possessive about owning land. And for First Nations people in Australia, they don't get that concept at all because land's not to be owned. And this story deals with can you own time? And of course, as an audience, you listen through and think, that's stupid. You can't possibly own time because they want to make money out of time. They're trying to set up ways of capitalizing time, which is just stupid. But yet we own land, which other people in our world would think, well, that's utterly stupid too. It was a really nice way of thinking through that concept. And I was really appreciative of thinking through that concept. That's fascinating, Philip. I love it. But because having traveled through Outback Australia and... Um, dealing with indigenous people myself um yeah it's it's absolutely true it's like um if if you leave stuff lying around out in the outback and it suddenly disappears it hasn't really been stolen and it's it was being described to me that they have the mentality that if it's there it's just theirs and that sort of explains what you just said explains to me how that works yeah and they, and they wouldn't be taking it as a possession they'd be taking it to use it and then they'd leave it for someone else to be able to use as well yeah, yeah that exactly. everything's there for mutual use and for the benefit of all not mm. just for ownership so yeah me white male i'm very much into ownership and possession yeah but actually that's not a concept that's out there all in, in all on all cultures and it's good to be reminded of the fact that actually other cultures have a lovely way of looking at things mm. and sometimes being forced to look at your own culture and how you look at something may actually make you realise, actually, maybe what I, the way I look at it is a bit dumb. Cyber Control to all humans. You must leave a review for the Sirens of Audio on your podcast app. And you must like, share, subscribe, and comment on the Sirens of Audio YouTube channel. This would be most excellent. On that note, let's move to our second story that's been selected selected for us by the Randomoid Selectatron, and that is uh, main range story number one hundred and eighty-five. It's called Moonflesh, 
written by Mark Morris, and it is a it is a Fifth Doctor and Nyssa story. So I'll read the blurb. It says one wouldn't normally expect to find elephants, gorillas, and rhinoceroses roaming free in Suffolk in the year 1911. One wouldn't normally expect to find an extra-dimensional police box at the same time-space location either. Two aliens, named the Doctor and Nyssa, exit said box, only to find themselves pursued by a hungry lioness, for they've landed in the private hunting grounds of the famous explorer Nathaniel Whitlock, who's brought together a motley group of friends and acquaintances for a weekend shooting. But one of Whitlock's guests isn't all they seem. One of them wants the secrets of the Moonflesh, the mystic mineral looked after by Whitlock's retainer, a Native American known as Silver Crow. Because the Moonflesh is reputed to have the power to call down spirits from another realm, and soon the Hunters will become the Hunted. Power of the darkness, come to me, come to me, O earthen flesh, power of the spiral, come to me, come to weave me in your web. It looks like a, a dinosaur egg made of crystal. I've never seen anything quite like it. Not on this planet, anyway. I used to be such a patient person, but I seem to have lost the ability to relax since I began travelling with the Doctor. Damn foolish of you to refuse the offer of a rifle, Doctor! In my experience, it's hard to make friends with someone if you're pointing a gun at them, Mr Whitlock. Horde of them! Coming down like rain! Yes, I'm afraid our problem is getting a whole lot worse! In my hand was the moon flesh, which Wakan Tanka had given to me and allowed me to bring back from the stars. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com. Okay, so moon flesh. I was very excited about this one being thrown up at us, Philip, because one thing I do remember very strongly is the trailer for this one, because the trailer that we've just heard, obviously, has uh, Silver Crow doing his chant from uh, towards the end of the story. And uh, I found that, I was, find that, I found it very fascinating. So it always stuck in my mind. So, and I do remember enjoying this. I didn't remember any of the details of it, really. But I remembered enjoying it very much at the time. Uh, I always like going back in the recent history of Earth. Uh, and it's a fascinating time just before World War One. Because, you know, before that it was, you know, known to be one of the most uh, peaceful times in history. What was around the corner in, in uh, 1914, just a few years later, uh, was incredible. But uh, always good to go back and, and, and look at that particular era. And to see the Doctor and Nyssa travelling around. It's interesting the blurb made the comment that the Doctor and Nyssa are both aliens. So that we've got a TARDIS crew with no humans on it, which is unusual in itself, Philip. It Never really thought unusual. about that before. Yeah, no, it is fairly unusual. Um, yeah, it, was, it, it was amazing going back and listen. I, I had no memory of this at all. So it's it's. I've got a whole era here, and I've, I've just been looking in terms of what's before and what's after it. I'm just looking at the stories before and after, thinking, I don't know what they are either. You know, Scavengers is the one before, and Tombships is the one after. I couldn't tell you for the life of me what either of those were about, and I couldn't tell you what this was about. Okay, so until we, I went back and started listening to it, Actually, even listening to it, it was sort of, because mm, um, I must have listened to it in 2014, and I haven't listened to it since. So 
it is. I'm loving the random ones because it's actually making me go back and listen to stuff that I haven't listened to to for a long time. Um, the first thing that struck me though, it's only eight years old, but you know what? I'm not sure we could make this today. Certainly, it couldn't be made the way it was. Um, just in terms of you know one of the major cast member being a Sioux warrior, but the fact that uh, you know it's it's. I've got some. I've got some things to say about that. Too. Got some things to say about that. Okay, so just that—that that was one of the things in terms of could we make this today? And the other that struck me too was, uh, I guess, partly the accents that people used. Um, got something when... to say about that? <laughs> well, there you go. Um, You're taking all my points, Philip. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's because we don't discuss it beforehand. Um, but yeah, when um, Timothy Bentick, who who I love, because I always say he's a lot, lots of big finished stuff. When he started speaking as Nathaniel Whitlock. Um, I, I had to go check the cast. It wasn't Graham Garden because it sounded like Graham Garden doing his um, silly voices from um, the goodies at, right. at, at one stage. Yep. Now I think I got used to it later on, but at first, you know, the, you, I don't know. I can't. I can't. I'm not an actor. I can't do the voices. But the the whole voice at the at the beginning, in terms of the the Lord of the Manor, um, African hunter, English, you know, English overlord voice. Um, stereotypical voice when it first came in I sort of went oh um, it just felt a bit over the top fortunately this actually matched by the whole cast but I'd be curious to know whether today if if this was remade would you would the cast do quite such strong stereotypes of voices but do you, you wanted to, those things you picked up on what were the things you wanted to say about them before I say more well I was thinking about Silver Crow mainly in terms of accents because it was the thing that struck me uh, as I was listening to it. And it's proof of why listening to the extras is so important when you listen to these things. Because I thought, that Silver Crow's accent, it's why isn't it American, you know? Why isn't it have American twang to it? Um, and the other thing that stood out to me too was the, uh, what was the, uh, the lady's name? Francesca? Oh, no. Fran Francesca Hunt playing Hannah Bartholomew. So the, the daughter? Um, or you think about um... no, no, she was the lady that was invited oh, yes. onto the estate yes, that's um, right. to engage yeah. in the hunt as well, um, and she made a comment too in the script and said, uh, "No, it's not Miss, it's Ms." And I went, "What? Ms. was around back in those days? That doesn't sound right. Is that something that you know trying to inject from the from the modern era?" But on both instances, if you listen to the extras, uh, it's John Banks who does Silver Crow, and he he goes in great detail as to uh, as to as to why or was it Ken Bentley I think it might have even been Ken Bentley talking about the accents they they specifically stuck on the accent because that's how they would have sounded at that time the the um, American accent hadn't infiltrated the Native American uh, population at that time in history so they would have been more influenced by the English accent so what John Banks was doing was more accurate than what was supposed in my own um, imagination so that was that was I, I really respect that uh, for the fact that they did this um, and the same with uh, Hannah Bartholomew's character she actually went into the history of where the word Ms came from I didn't realize it was a word that was so old it's come from the 17th century um, and there were other reasons why they used it as well and she goes into it uh, more on the extras, which is why it's imperative that if you've got any questions in your mind about an accent or something doesn't quite make sense, listen to the extras because they'll often explain it uh, a, a little better and it'll make the story a, 
all that more rich uh, yeah. in the in the experience of it for for hearing those extras too, Philip. Yeah, and that's why talking to the uh, author about this soon as you're going to yes. keep coming up. There'll be, yeah. a, I'm sure, some of these questions. I, th- I think last time, I forget what was the last time we were with one of the Johnny Morris. It was Johnny Morris, and you know, there was issues we were, that we'd had we're with the story. We worried about the accent. Yeah, and yeah. Then when we talked about it, it all became clear what had happened. Yeah. And so, yes, I'm, I'm, I've no doubt that when we start chatting soon, um, some of our queries will cut, yeah, be answered in terms of why things happened the way they did. One of the things yeah. I really also enjoyed in terms of this performance was Hugh Fraser. Oh, um, yeah. So he, I love Hugh and everything that he does. I mean, it's interesting now that whenever I hear him, he's always the president of the Federation. Um, Big Finish cast him in Blake 7 to be the president. Yes. So, you know, fighting Jacqueline Pierce's Serverland. And for me now, when I hear his voice, because he's most famous probably, certainly for people in Australia, as Perot's assistant, um, Colonel... Oh, I can't think of the Colonel's name. Anyhow, he's um, Perot's usual assistant in terms of all the Perot mysteries which uh, I adore and love. And so he, it's a voice that I knew, but he does appear on lots of big finishes and he just has such a most amazing tone. But he's actually really well written that you really hate him. <laughs> like, mm. this is a character you really hate early on. Yeah. And he, and, but he portrays you with enough, oh, I don't know, enough being that you don't, you don't hate him. or dis- Well, you do hate him, but you still listen to him and it's still engaging as a character. It's not, it's not a caricature. But you really just don't like him. I do think um, his his son gets over his death very quickly at the end. Hey, you can come and live with us now. Um, it was a bit too much like the um, Doctor Who special with the Sea Devils, where uh, this 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 pirate person has you know, murdered your father. But hey, you can come out and live with me now. We'll be together. And, oh yeah, yeah. No, you don't get over someone <laughs> someone's death quite so easily. I don't, I don't so know anything easily. about that. I haven't seen it. No. Well, one day when you do, you'll uh, understand what. <laughs> I understand what I said. Um, so I, I do think that the, the wrap-up was just a bit too quick um, in terms of dealing with, once again, but <laughs> classic Doctor Who's never dealt with, I mentioned that before, emotions well and, and death very well. It does tend to fl- flip over things, usually quite superficially. Um, Big Finish does a much better job at making it a bit more solid. Other reflections about this, Dwayne? Yeah, I love the sci-fi elements in it. Um, it, it uses elements that's sci-fi tropes that have been done before but it does them in a i mean all stories have been done before haven't they but it does it in a really engaging and interesting way um and yeah i i was really happy to go back there i thought that i was sort of waiting for that chanting to come uh i thought it would happen throughout but it didn't happen until right at the end so it, so it made me think it must have been the uh the trailer that had stuck in my mind because i seem to think that in in my mind, that chant had from Silver Crow had gone all through the whole story, but it wasn't. So, uh, yeah, because that, that that whole dreamscape that the Doctor and Silver Crow go to oh, it was fascinating, wasn't it? Was was really a fascinating sidestep in yeah. the story. Yeah, it, 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 what you know that one of the things I struggle with with four episode stories is do they actually have enough material to, to enough story to make four episodes work? Yeah. And often I think that they have to to put padding in. That sidestep possibly was padding, yeah, but, but it was it's good padding. <laughs> it was it was engaging. It did drive the story forward still, and it gave them lovely character moments between those two characters. Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of Yellowstone. I don't know if you've seen that show, Philip. So lots of Native American uh, elements in that that you get to see, particularly the 
the dreaming the dreamscapes and things like that which is uh, fascinating so um yeah i was very happy to go back and yeah i was looking at the surrounding stories too philip and going oh i'd love to go back and revisit some of those yeah i i, I want to find the time to go in and listen to some of these and i'm loving sarah sutton and peter davidson together I, yeah. aren't they incredible peter's peter's always said that that's the right pairing and every time I hear the two of them together, yep, that, that pairing is just We, we talk perfect. so much about the Big Finish created companions like Charlie and Evelyn uh, as two examples, but we, we, tend to, we tend to maybe push the Fifth Doctor and Nisra aside a little bit uh, because they were on television, but they were never on television apart from a couple of episodes of Arc, Arc of Infinity on their own. So... Uh, Definitely, they should not be pushed aside. They are a, quite a duo for for the for the audio range. Yeah, this, this is almost a big finish companion pairing because yeah, you know, as you say, yeah. the Doctor and Lisa were never paired together. One episode of Ark Infinity before Janet Fielder came back in episode two, uh, and you can actually see the potential for the, these two together. And Big Finish is, is exploiting it. Their relationship is just so positive. The care, the care he has for her. Her intelligence and vice, and vice versa. Her intelligence is just allowed to shine. She's just a strong character. With, with just him, they respect each other. They bounce on each other. And it's the ultimate. I mean, they're similar physical ages. It's the ultimate platonic relationship. It's it's really beautiful, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I really. There's, you you never get to. a sense of any kind of other undertones there or tensions that are there. Um, they're just really good friends who care for each other and it works perfectly. Yep, I fully agree. All right, let's get into a bit more detail on Moonflesh and have a chat with the author, Mark Morris. What do you reckon, Philip? Sounds great to me. So welcome, Mark Morris. Thank you for joining us on The Sirens of Audio. Thank you for having me. Now, it was great to uh, make make contact with you. So we, we love being able to talk to authors about their works. But before we stalk, talk about Moonflesh, do you want to tell us a bit about why you became a writer? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I'd always loved writing at school. Um, you know, when uh, when we ever when we got um, essays to write or stories to write in English, um, I would always write fifteen pages or something, and everybody else would write like two or three pages. Um, and um, my stories always got read out to the class, and I always loved read uh, writing them and. I think, you know, from a very early age, I loved reading as well. I've always loved ghost stories, horror stories. I gravitated, obviously, towards Doctor Who because that was the kind of thing on TV that really scared me when I was a kid. Um, and uh, so I started writing Doctor Who stories. I wrote a couple of Doctor Who novels when I was about 10, um, which I still have in, like, ring binder notepads. And I'd always just, just enjoyed writing for, for fun. And then I went to university, had no idea, came, came out the other end, had no idea what I wanted to do for a living, uh, and just really started writing stories, audio plays, all sorts of things, just for my own amusement while I was looking for a job. And then eventually I just started sending things out and getting a few things accepted and thought to myself, I would really like to make a live, try and make a living out of this. So I wrote a novel called The Winter Tree, uh, which was a horror novel, um, which was uh, very well accepted by a lot of publishers. It wasn't published, but it had really good feedback from several publishers. Um, and then I decided to go on a scheme which we had in the, here in the UK at the time called the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, which was kind of part of uh, a, a, a thing by from a 
Margaret Thatcher's Britain. Um, you know, that it was a kind of thing that uh, for self-employed people where they would give you money for your first year of business um, to kind of tide you over and allow you to pay bills and all that sort of stuff. So I decided to write a novel. I wrote a novel called Toady, which was a big, fat horror novel, about 700 page horror novel. Um, and then I went on the Enterprise Allowance Scheme with the aim being to market that novel um, for the year that I was on the scheme and write another novel. Um, and luckily, within six, eight weeks or so of going on the scheme, I sold Toady. So um, I've, I've kind of continued ever since. So you mainly write novels and mainly horror? I write all sorts of things. I mainly write, I, I mean, I write novels. I write, uh, as you know, audio dramas. I write short stories. I'm also an editor, so I edit anthologies. Um, I've done all sorts. I've done non I've written non-fiction as well, sort of articles and things for magazines and, and stuff. So yeah, I've done I've done all sorts of all sorts of things. Okay, now, now you mentioned it as a kid is when you got interested in Doctor Who. So how did that come about? The first, my first memory is of seeing the Abominable Snowman in 1967 when I was four years old. I have vivid memories of of that particular um, story, and I have vivid memories of. Um, the seeds of death and web of fear and the invasion and and my memories are of being absolutely terrified you know being almost like traumatized by what I was seeing I have very vivid memories of some of the things that just terrified me when I was a mad cyberman in the sewer in the invasion and you know and the and the um the the ice warrior from the ice warrior's point of view when they're kind of shuffling around looking for the doctor but it was it was one of those things where although I was terrified and same with horror horror movies, I always wanted to go back for more. There was a kind of a draw that drew me back. So for me, Doctor Who was originally it was the only thing on TV that was scary at the time that kids could watch. So that was what kind of really drew me. I'd always just loved it for that reason. And I think then what really cemented me as a kind of bona fide died in the wall fan was when I got my first bought my first Doctor Who book because at the time I didn't realize Target were doing novelizations I had no idea and then I, I just found one in um in a, in a bookshop one day and it was the Auton Invasion or Spearhead from Space and I, I bought it just because I liked the big tentacled creature on the cover and thought oh Doctor Who I like Doctor Who I'll buy that and then I remember turning it around and reading the back and realizing that it was about the autons, the plastic mannequins that had, that had terrified me just a few years earlier. I was seven when I saw that and I was 11 when I bought the book. And it wasn't until that moment that I just thought, oh, it's the it's the shop window dummies that come alive. It's the thing that, you know, it's the story that really terrified me. And then I was just so thrilled um, and just then became, just bought anything to do with Doctor Who. And it was also the time when Tom Baker had just started as the Doctor. I think it was literally when I bought my first Doctor Who book, it was the second episode of Robot that day. So, of course, that double whammy of new, exciting Doctor and discovering Doctor Who books and being able to revisit stories I'd seen in the dim and distant past, for me, um, were the two things that kind of really cemented my, my, you know, my fandom credentials, if you like. So did you stick with Doctor Who until the it was... It ended with Sylvester McCoy, or you chewed off before that? No, I've stuck with it. I've stuck with it all the way through. Um, you know, there are certain there are certain eras that I like more than others, but if it's Doctor Who, I love it. You know, even 
even say the my least favorite Doctor Who story, I would buy it on video, then I would buy it on DVD, then I would buy it on Blu-ray. Even even if I don't like it particularly, I would still go and spend money on on it, you know. Um, so now I stuck with it right through, and then uh, obviously then carried on reading the that the Virgin New Adventures and things like that. And uh, then when Big Finish started doing the audios, I was buying those. Well, at the time, I was buying every one. Now it's 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 impossible to buy everything. <laughs> it's hard work, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's just too expensive and to have the time. So how are you feeling about the forthcoming animation of The Abominable Snowmen with your uh, first memories being of that story? Are you, are, you, are you okay with animations or are you, are you concerned that it might affect your, your memory of the past a little? No, I'm really excited by it. I mean, I think at the moment, because it's the only way that we can watch those old shows, it's not perfect, obviously, and they can't do such brilliant animation that, you know, it's not kind of seamless. But I'm, I'm really excited about the animations. And I know recently they've said they're not doing any more or they've hit some kind of snag with, with them about funding. Um, so I'm really hoping that they manage to sort that out and, and get the rest of them done. I think at yeah, some point, well, I think, you know, the technology will improve and will improve. And we'll probably just see updated versions and updated versions. And I'm hoping that, you know, before I get to the end of my life, we might even see, if, if we don't get the episodes back, we might even see them able to almost recreate the episodes um, because the technology will be so brilliant, you know, that we'll be able to see them almost as, as if they were the real episodes. Um, that's kind of a pipe dream at the moment. But no, I love the animations. Anything that, yeah, anything that can add just to the soundtrack is brilliant as far as I'm concerned. So did you get into fandoms to your years? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't kind of go to conventions and things um, unless I'm asked to go as a guest. I've been to a few just as a guest. Um, it, it's not something I would kind of choose to go to particularly, but I, I, I know a lot of Doctor Who people, put it that way. I mean, I've become friends with a lot of Doctor Who people over the years, people like Rob Shearman and you know Nick Briggs and people like that. Um, that I've got to know through writing the audios and uh, and doing Doctor Who events. Um, so although I'm not in fandom, as in going to all the conventions and stuff, I, I do know lots and lots of Doctor Who people. So so how was it that you came to write for Big Finish? Because uh, if one of the stories in forty five was your first one, wasn't it? It was. It was. It was really just because I'd written um, for I'd written a few Doctor Who novels for the BBC. And then Big Finish just got in touch at some point. I think it was, um, I can't remember who it was that got in touch with me now. Um, but one, somebody from Big Finish, I don't think it was Nick, but it was, it was somebody, it was one of the producers there, just got in touch and said, would I be interested in writing an audio drama? Um, and I said, I'd love to, but I've never, at, at that point, I've never done a script. I've never written any kind of script or, you know, sold a script apart from for fun when I was, when I was much younger. Um, I said, I've, you know, I've never written a script, but I would love to. Um, and they said, well, that's fine. We, we'll just kind of ease you through the process, you know, just just work on it. We'll work with you. And I got a lot. It was Alan Barnes, actually. Yes, it was Alan Barnes that got in touch with me, I think. Um, you know, and we'll work with you. And so um, I produced this 25-minute episode or story, self-contained story. Uh, and, and after that, they just asked me back and asked me back again. And, you know, it's, it's been a kind of ongoing thing not I, I don't work with big finish as much as some people do um, um but occasionally they'll ask me to for something and I'll, I'll always oblige 
Hmm. Uh, the story we're keen to talk about today is Moonflesh. So yeah. do you remember how you got commissioned for that and how that came about? Um, I think, again, it was just another one of those. Uh, occasionally they get in touch and say, do you fancy doing another one? Um, and I think it was it was just an email that they sent and said, uh, would you, fan, do you fancy doing another Peter Davison story, another Fifth Doc story? Um, so I sent them, as, as always, you send them two or three ideas um, and they um, choose the one that they like the most and then discuss it with you. And then it kind of changes a little bit. And, you know, by the time it comes out, it's usually changed quite a lot from your original concept. Um, but I think it was just it was just that ongoing process of, of them just getting in touch with me every every so often and just saying, would I like to write another another one? So do you know how the idea for Moonflesh came about? I, w- I was looking at it today and I was I was there were there were quite a few kind of disparate things that went into Moonflesh. I've been doing quite a bit of research into sort of Native American stories and legends. I had a big fat book of Native American stories and legends. Um, and I think my original idea which was quite a few years before, was to maybe write, and I think this was when Virgin were doing their old Doctor novels, was to maybe write a second Doctor novel set around the Lewis and Clark expedition in 1804, which was um, a couple of guys who uh, undertook a two-year journey through kind of unknown territory at the time of the United States, which comprised about 8,000 miles, and they encountered you know, hostile Native Americans and fell victim to disease and starvation and all sorts of hardships. And so I just thought it was a, it was quite an interesting sort of premise for a Doctor Who story where the Doctor could land in the middle of this and encounter these guys and have some kind of adventure out in the, you know, the unknown territory of the US uh, desert as it was at the time. Um, and so I was doing lots of research into Native American stories and legends, but it never really came to anything. I could never really kind of get a proper handle on it, but I'd always liked the idea of doing something with kind of Native Americans in. The other thing that really uh, influenced it was there was a film in the 1970s, a horror movie in the early 70s, which I don't know whether you'll have seen or not, called Trilogy of Terror, which was, um, I think, three or four stories, and they were all based on Richard Matheson. In fact, Richard Matheson might have written the script. So Richard Matheson wrote The Incredible Shrinking Man and all that kind of thing. Um, so they're all based on Richard Matheson stories. And there was a particular story in that, which was, I remember watching as a teenager probably and finding it terrifying. And it's a, a story where um, a woman played by Karen Black has this little kind of African doll called the Zuni doll, which is this kind of ferocious little thing. And it has a necklace or something. Uh, around its neck and for some reason the necklace gets broken or falls off and of course then the Zuni doll comes alive and stalks her through her apartment and tries to kill her and it's just this horrible ferocious little beast Um, and so I had the idea for um, a kind of trilogy of terror Doctor Who story which I thought would be set in a country house and it would be uh, the, the guy who owned the country house would be an explorer and he would have not just one kind of a Zuni doll or, you know, uh, an approximation of a Zuni doll, but dozens of these things. And they would become possessed by some kind of alien creature. And the, the, the whole household would then be laid siege by these horrible little ferocious monsters that were coming to try and kill them. So that was, there was those two. So the, the two things, there was the Native American angle, and then there was the kind of Zuni doll trilogy of terror thing. And I sort of brought them together and um, 
just uh, we and we just I think we discussed it with through you know with Big Finish with probably with Nick and with Alan and thought well what we could do is we could bring in a kind of Agatha Christie element sort of you know lots of disparate people in a country house and we could do this and we could do that um, and they then it just sort of developed from there really so it became something slightly different with with uh, possessed wild animals and um, you know all sorts of other bits and bobs as well. One of the things that stood out to me with the with listening to it was John Banks's performance as Silver Crow, and yeah. the fact that uh, he didn't have an American accent stood out to me. And the extras brought out at the end that the uh, Indians at that particular time in the early nineteen hundreds still wouldn't have incorporated the American accent into their into their speech at that time. So I thought that was really interesting. Is that something that was worked out by the by John, or was or was that incorporated by you into the script? It wasn't incorporated by me. I assume it was it was probably John that worked it out. I know originally they they talked about getting a Native American actor to play that part, um, and I don't know how. I don't know what the process was. I don't know kind of how hard they tried, and maybe they couldn't find one, or I, don't, I honestly don't know. Um, but as I say, I wasn't. I didn't go to the recording, so I only heard sort of not very long before the recording who you know who the cast were um so when i i i, I saw that um, john was doing it and i thought oh okay they, they've decided not to go with the native american thing so i was kind of interested to see how he would approach it but um no i didn't i didn't write it with i didn't kind of specify any kind of accent or anything i just i just wrote it as a character um it's always best not to do too much of that not to give the actor too much um, you know, too many restrictions. Um, it's always best just to kind of leave it up to them to interpret the role, to try and encapsulate the character, but then just to leave it up to them as to how to as to how to play it. Yeah, I mean, this was recorded about eight years ago, and I, one of the things we commented on before was whether or not you could actually make it today without using a Native American actor in the role. I think you'd struggle yeah. a lot more. Yeah, I think you probably would actually. What, what, what do you think in terms of the role of appropriation between, you know, taking Native American stories and doing what you did with them? Was it something you were deliberately trying to do? And once again, do you think you could get away with that today? Is it, how much have we changed that years, do you think, in story writing terms? Um, I think it's, it's a tricky thing, isn't it? Because there is all this kind of a cultural appropriation um, element that you've got to think about. But, but at the same time, I think, you know, if if you don't kind of go out of your comfort zone and write about things you don't know or try to write, you know, try to, I mean, the, yeah, it is, it's, it's something I've talked about with my friends and I think you can be hampered by, you know, um, maybe not because I'm, you know, I'm white middle-aged English guy, you know, you, you sort of, sometimes you're told that, um, Oh, you don't, you shouldn't write about black characters because, you don't have that background. You don't know anything about them. You shouldn't write about women because you're not a woman. You shouldn't write about this. You shouldn't. But if you do that, then you're kind of just hamstrung about writing about, you know, white middle-class white guys. And then you get accused of, of, of not, <laughs> uh, you know, of, 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 of not representing wider society if you do that. So it's a kind of a catch-22 thing. Um, I think the only thing you can do is just to write what you want to write and write it as best you can and try to write it as sympathetically and as realistically as you possibly can so yeah it is a bit of a minefield these days to be honest but you just have to kind of go with it and just see what you you know 
see what what kind of response you get. There's this thing as well about you know now making, um, uh, you know, just sort of not making a black guy a criminal if you like, or not making this character this sort of thing because it's it's about stereotyping, um, and it's a tricky thing. It's it is a very tricky thing. It is you're kind of treading on eggshells a lot of the time. But I agree that I think I do think that nowadays they probably would have a Native American actor playing that role. I think it was actually recorded. It was recorded on Doctor Who's 49th anniversary. It was the 23rd of November, so which means it was about 10 years ago, doesn't it? So it was recorded about 10 years ago now. Yeah, I think it was nine years ago. I think. Yeah, I think it took a while to um, uh, uh, to see the light of day. 2000, uh, 2000, actually, 2012. You're right. So it's, it's coming up to 10 years old. You're right. Yeah, it took a while. Ago, yeah. Yeah, no. As I say, it's interesting how things have changed. But we um, we had an interesting conversation with Stephen Greif, the actor, and he was yeah. he was bemoaning the fact that actors can no longer play sweet parts because the feeling is now that you know, if, you, know you, you can't put on a Spanish accent, you can't put on a French accent. You know, all these yeah. all the years of drama school and training to learn how to be other people, they can no yeah, longer, yeah. longer do. And and I, and I I mean I think I think Ray mentioned I think you know Tom Hanks recently came out in in terms of you know. Only gay people should play gay parts. Yes, um, yeah. just in terms of whether it's limiting so much in terms of you know what the arts are for. And yeah, exactly, I, yeah. And yeah. I think Maureen Lipman said only didn't she? She had some um, she had some objection about a non-Jewish actor playing a Jewish role as well. I think recently, didn't she? Who was that? Uh, Maureen Lipman. Right. Was talking about was it Helen Mirren or somebody? Ella Mirren playing playing a, a famous Jewish iconic kind of leader or something, and and, and Maureen Lippman complained about that. Right, it, yeah. it's it's interesting. Yes, the interesting grounds, and yeah, it, yeah. It, it was it was interesting just listening to it because the feel that when I listened the first time it wouldn't have been an issue whatsoever, but now now always in your head there's this churning. Oh, what, yeah. yeah, is this acceptable now? Could, could it pass now? And 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 how yeah. long before we move out of out of the current phase we're in? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. In terms of the story, um, Moonflesh is just apart from the setting of Moonflesh, which ha could very well lend itself to being uh, quite a a good setting for a horror story. And you being uh, a, known for being a horror writer, Moonflesh has it's it's more of a sci-fi. Uh, story towards the end so were you sort of pulled back from the horror into make it a bit more sci-fi do you recall or was that always your or was that always your no, idea was my intention and i think the last episode i always wanted to go into the kind of the, the dreamscape um so it was all about kind of going into the you know the kind of native american dreamscape the sort of dreaming thing with doctor who i'm always drawn towards the horror element so i'm, I'm always drawn towards trying to make it scary uh, and quite often, um, like Nick Briggs in particular, pulls me back from that and says, no, this is too horrific. This is too horrific. We can't have this. Um, and so I always have to kind of rein it in a little bit. But obviously, How did I mean, you get away to... with Plague of the Daleks then? Uh, well, that was <laughs> Alan Barnes who insisted on, on some of that stuff. Uh -huh. it, was Alan it was Alan Barnes who suggested that I bring in the Daleks, for instance. I wasn't going to have the Daleks originally. And it was Alan Barnes who wanted to bring in the, the kind of zombie element, if you like. You know the fact that this this kind of poison rain, which affects people and turns them into kind of ravening psychotic zombie type creatures. 
that was Alan Barnes' suggestion. I think my original story was was uh, was was not as horrific from what I remember. I mean, it was a long time ago, so I can't remember the details. Um, but it was Alan that was pushing the, the horror element there. Um, so it's usually Alan. Alan is quite happy with that because he knows that that's my background. Whereas Nick is always like reining it in and saying, "No, we can't do this. This is too horrific. This is too horrific." Yeah, sorry, I forgot what your original question was now. Um, so was with Moonflesh, did you have more horror elements that you were sort of reined back a little? Um, no, again, it's um, what I had were lots of different ideas and I kind of just brought them together. And I think in the end, it was pretty much my thing. I don't think there was anything with Moonflesh that um, that was sort of vetoed. I think people, a few people suggested things and said, oh, what about you could do this or what about doing this? But I always had the idea of, of the sort of the possessed animals. Um, I always wanted to do, I don't know if you remember, but the end of episode two when all the meteorites are landing, I always wanted that to be a kind of a little homage to the Pescatons LP, which I bought as a kid. So the, the end of part one of that, the doc, the, all, the, all the, the kind of Pescaton meteorites, they're, they're landing in the Thames. And I just love the, you know, the doctor's voice and, and the sound effect of them all just splashing into the tent. And I kind of wanted to recreate that feeling a little bit for the end of episode two. That's um, uncanny. I listen to the Pescatons today. Oh, really? Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's very I strange. It. I mean, it has its it has its faults, but it's it's it's. I loved it at the time. I bought it on LP when I was about eleven or twelve, and I absolutely adored it. Um, and I'm still very fond of it. Yeah, so there were lots of lots of little elements that came into it. Um, the Zuni doll thing, uh, I think I I probably reined that back a little bit in the end. I, I, for me, it was going to be a really scary kind of you know people trying to hide from these horrible little ferocious creatures. But I I decided that once I started expanding the plot and working out all the other elements, that there wasn't really a lot of room for that. So I just brought that in as just a kind of a smaller just a smaller element of the plot. One of the uh, pairings that you do quite well is um, Nissa and the Doctor, Fifth Doctor. Mm -hmm. um, is that a particular favourite in terms of putting them together? Because certainly, certainly how you um, give them both agency and strong agency. Yeah, and Peter Davison always always says that he, I think he thinks that Nissa is like the perfect Fifth Doctor companion, and they do spark off each other really well. I think, um, and also you know when when you've got the cluttered TARDIS with Turlow in there and Tegan in there, who are both quite strong and distinctive personalities, it does give everyone else much less to do. So I find it really nice to develop uh, the Fifth Doctor and Nissa's relationship. And I find them quite easy to write. I, 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 I hear that, I remember, I, I hear their voices very distinctly in my head. Um, and um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed to, to just sort of getting them together. And it's also with with Nissa, the thing I think the thing is to not make her bland because there is a tendency when you've got those other two characters in there, particularly that Nissa can just drift into the background and just become a kind of a almost like a kind of a bland mouth scientific mouthpiece. So it's it's giving her you know more to do and making her kind of you know brave and and resourceful and all those kind of things which which every doctor who companion should be um so i kind of like that i liked writing the i think there's a subplot with is it phoebe 
um the, the the other young girl i think there's a bit of a subplot with them and they develop quite a nice relationship so uh, it was good right yeah it was good writing all that kind of stuff yeah now there's a bit of a conservation message that runs throughout it without being preachy uh do you have a bit of a conservation background or does that just was just worked your well with the story no not really i think it just kind of worked its way into the story I thought, uh, yeah it wasn't yeah it wasn't supposed to be kind of out there particularly um i think it's yeah it just worked its way in there i think it was just a case of because the story's set in uh 1911 which again was very deliberate because it was like a little nod to pyramids of mars so i just like the idea of those two stories being set in the same year same time um with different yeah with different doctors and i think just you know the attitudes then were just very different especially to do with like big game hunting and all that kind of thing so it was nice just to play with that a little bit yeah, well, we see people going out and shooting down friendly lions and things <laughs> like the, yeah. in the last couple of years. You know, dentist holidays, we go shooting down lions. Um, yeah, is, is, yeah. is the house based on a house you know? Because there are English estates, aren't they, that used to have. It's it's kind of a, was it a true house that you had, or was it just a mix? Not of really. Stories? I've been to a lot of stately homes and and you know English country houses and things, and it was just an amalgamation of various different ones. Um, so it's just a kind of archetypal, really English country house. So have you had a chance to listen to it all recently, or not for a long time? Not for a long time, no, no, I haven't. Okay. Well, I want to ask the question: What you changed then, if anything? All oh, right. Okay. Um, I think from what I remember, when when I actually heard the recording, um, I think I remember being slightly disappointed with episode four. Um, and I can't remember why, but I felt as though there were certain a couple of elements of the story that faded a little bit into the background uh, or were not as clear as they could have been. Um, so I think maybe I would and I can't I can't remember specifics because, as I say, it's a long time since I've, I've heard it. But I think I would look at episode four again. And I suspect it's just because, as with a lot of these things, you don't get a huge amount of time. To, to hone them and, and rewrite them and rewrite them. You know, you're always up against the clock. It's the age old thing that they talk about with the TV show as well. You know, you, you're always up against the clock. You're always up against deadlines. Um, and I think, it, yeah, I think if I, if I had possibility, I would probably look at episode four again and just tie it up a little bit more. Um, I don't know how you guys feel having listened to it yourselves, but I just remember at the time thinking, or it wasn't quite as, as clear and as strong as I wanted it to be. Certainly, not all of it, but just certain elements of it. I really actually enjoyed the sidestep into the dreamscape. It, it wasn't what I was expecting. And yeah. um, it, was, it, was a, it was a nice sidestep. I was going to say exactly the same. I enjoyed that, uh, that dreamscape uh, sequence too. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, that bit's okay. I think it was, it's possibly to do with the, other aliens you know the other all the aliens arrive in at the end of episode two and i think from what i recall i may be wrong but i feel as though they fade into the background a little bit once you get into the, the whole dreamscape story and it's more to do with the um is it the vatus i think uh the 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 main villain and the humans and then you're kind of wondering what all the other aliens are doing at this point I don't know if that's the case. I can't, I, I, you know, as I say, it's a long time since I've listened to it, but I, I remember at the time thinking, um, yeah, what are they actually doing at this, at this, at this point, you know, while, while all this is going on. So I think I would maybe just highlight that a little bit more. So what are you working on at the moment? Is there anything we could be looking out for? Um, well, nothing Doctor Who related, I'm afraid. I'm, no, no, uh, that's okay. What are you up to though? 
I'm editing um, a novel. Um, so I've written, I've recently finished a novel, sent it to my agent. He just had a few comments as my agent always does. So I'm just uh, acting on his few comments. Um, I'm editing and I, I edit a, an annual anthology for Flame Tree Press, which is an annual um, uh, horror fiction anthology. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm doing that at the moment. Um, so we've done, I'm currently working on number four, the fourth book. Uh, the third book isn't quite out. The third book's out in, in October. And then the fourth book, which I'm working on now, will be out the following October. And hopefully it will just be a continuing series. Um, what else have I done recently? Oh, there's a TV thing that I'm not allowed to talk about. So <laughs> <laughs> we get that a lot. <laughs> quite interesting TV thing. Yeah, a few bits and bobs. I'm always kind of juggling a few different things, to be honest. Well, it's good to be working. That's great. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, well hopefully it won't be too long before you're back and finish again, too. It's been, been, a, been a few years. It's been a while, yeah. Um, it, yeah, I just uh, I think the last one I did was The Dispossessed. Yeah. And that was to a friend of mine, Guy Adams. Um, the thing with Big Finisher, and, and rightly so, is that they're always wanting to try out new writers rather than just use the same writers over and over again. So you tend to get writers coming through and then they tend to work quite a bit with Big Finish and then you get other new writers coming through. But I mean, I'm, all, I'm always open to doing Doctor Who stuff if I get asked and, you know, and it is nice to get asked now and again, whether it be writing prose or, you know, or, um, or, a, or a, a, an audio. But I've been doing other audio work in the meantime. I've been doing quite a bit with Baffle Gab. Um, okay. Sort of adapting, uh, adapted uh, um, uh, an old classic horror, horror movie called Blood on Satan's Claw, um, which went down very well. Um, and I've done a few other bits and bobs for them. So I am, I have been writing an audio recently, but it was for Battle Gab, not for Big Finish. Excellent. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming in and sharing with us your uh, members of Moonflesh. And uh, yeah, it'd be great to chat with you. Yeah, great. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you. Righto, Philip. So that's our randomoids for this time. But there's only one thing to do before we finish tonight. Well, there's two things to do, really. But the first thing we've got to do is we've got to pick the next two randomoid selections that we're going to discuss for next month's edition of We've Got Randomoids. So, Philip, just for a change, I would like you to be the selector today. So I'll just start the music and you can select away and surprise me for a change. I'm looking forward to this. Wow, okay, well here we go with my first pick. Let's hit the little magic button, see what comes up. And, well, I'm excited, but I'm not sure you're going to be quite so much because I think this is something that you may have not liked at the time. Okay. It's actually an Unbound. Right. So we've managed to pick up another Unbound. As long as it's not Arabella Weir. <laughs> no, it's not that one. Uh, it's Storm of Angels. Oh, so number excellent. seven. So this is um, Jesse Sequel Bolden. to Old Mortality. That's right, and Carol Ann Ford. So I'm actually might listen to Old Mortality as well. Again, just to remind myself <laughs> of that one. Um, and I'm pretty sure there's actually a double disc, if I remember. It is a double. Yep. I, thought it, I thought it was a long story. Um, and once again, I don't think I've listened to this since it came out. I do remember enjoying it at the time. Right. But I'm not sure I've listened to it since. And um, yeah, so Jeffy Bond was always someone. So that's our first one. Excellent. Uh, Unbound Storm of Angels. So people who are at home playing with us, do come and join us and uh, try and have a listen to that. Okay, and number 148 in the main range. So we're Ooh. still sort of in the same sort of era. Okay. It's another Peter Davison. Uh, but this time, as well as Sarah Sutton's Oscar, Janet Fielding and Mark Strickson, it's The Rat Trap. Oh, okay. I'm glad you're picking. 
because if that was me, I would have said, oh, I better pick another one. Oh, really? <laughs> that was one I didn't like. Oh, I, you know what? I can't remember it well enough. But I remember very well that I couldn't stand it. So, but it's it's good to go back and revisit these things because I might have changed my mind. You changed right. your mind on Unbound, uh, the last Unbound we did, but I might change my mind on this one. Right. See, that's the third last physical release I think I bought. Oh, really? Yeah, because I th- I th- I'm pretty sure I stopped at 150. Because the next one was Robophobia, yep. which I know I bought as hard copy, and I think I stopped at 150. Because, yeah, <laughs> even though I was stopping, because they couldn't afford the... Um, Price changes anymore. Um, I still had to go one more time and yeah, finish with a nice numbers. One hundred and fifty was a good number for me to stop at. Um, <laughs> you like your round numbers, don't you? I do like my. Oh come on, we're not two fans. Then we got to sort of put things together. So, do you want to know what what it would have been if we'd gone back for one more pick? Yeah, go on. It would have been all consuming fire. The oh, that, I would have preferred that. Well, we could do three. Nah, just do two. <laughs> Okay. All right, so, so it's Rat Trap and Rat a Storm Trap. of Angels for a the next We've Got Randomoids. Mm. Very good. All right, so that only leaves us to conclude with our recommendations for this episode. And uh, can I go first this time? No, we can't do that. We can't go that far, surely. Philip, it's your turn. What have you like got for us to recommend? Okay, well, I'm going to recommend something that I've only listened to so far once. So it is, it is audio, but it's musical. Okay. Because people might be aware that... Um, a couple of weeks ago with the Tony Awards, um, which is a great, you know, every year the Tony Awards look at the best on Broadway. Um, and the winner uh, of the Tony Awards was a musical called A Strange Loop. A Strange Loop. A Strange Loop. Mm. And so I'm just going to recommend people have a listen to that. It's <laughs> I, I, I've been actually meaning to read up a bit more on, on the whole controversy of this. Because I'm pretty sure it actually won no other awards during the entire night. And so when it pulled out the best musical, it was a bit of a surprise because other musicals had been picking up you know, all the nominations for the score because Six, which is, I'm not sure if you know of the musical Six, which I adore, um, it's a musical about Henry, Henry VIII's Six Wives. So it's, it's just the Six Wives on stage singing about their lives in a rock musical girl band sort of context. That won the best new score, the best lyrics, won best costumes. I thought it was a shoo-in to win Best musical, didn't get it. Um, other shows, one picked up their you know, best actresses and best actors and all those things. And then out of the blue, A Strange Loop came along. So, yeah, if you belong to Apple Music or things, you can just download, listen to it, part of your subscription. Um, have a listen, see what you think. It's got some interesting comedy moments. Um, there are a lot of in jokes if you're a Broadway person, a musical person. Um, yeah, have a listen. Tell me what you think. And do you think it should have won um, Best Tony? Are you asking me or the listeners? I'm asking the listeners. I'm not yeah, asking good. you. I don't expect you to listen to it, Dwayne. <laughs> oh, I was going to say. There must be there must be some other musical theatre fans out there. I can't be the only one. I'm sure there is. Well, maybe I am. <laughs> Let us know. What, what about you, Dwayne? Now, what, what are you, what are you going to recommend? Because I'm sure you're going to recommend something much more sensible than me. I don't know if it's sensible, but I've been recently on television. I'm not going to recommend a television series this time. Uh, I'm going to recommend something on audio, but I have been watching the the new version of the Midwich Cuckoos. Have you seen that? I've got no idea what you're talking about. You don't know the Midwich Cuckoos by John Wyndham? No, it's a book originally, is it? Yeah. So I Day of the Triffids read, I, author? Yeah, yeah. I thought I'd read all these books. Midwitch Cuckoos, uh, crack, was originally crack, made into a movie called The Day of the Damned, uh, sorry, Village of the Damned. Oh, okay, I do know that. 
Okay, so that's the the actual name of the book is The Midwitch Cuckoo. So that's just been uh, remade. There's lots and lots of different versions of it. And a version that I was inspired to go and seek out, it's available on YouTube, folks, is the BBC radio version from 1981 or 1982 of The Midwitch Cuckoos. It's a three-part series. So the, the TV series went for seven hours. This went for three 30-minute episodes. So that was a bit easier to digest, but uh, probably not as complex as the TV series. So yeah, I, the one thing that stood out to me was the actor's name, William Gaunt. So he's got a yep. starring role in this version. Um, so seek it out, guys. It's a good one. BBC Radio does some good stuff. Yeah, something I've, I've always wanted to, to be made in an audio was Chrysalids by yep. John Wyndham. That's an amazing book. And I don't, maybe, maybe it has been done. I should look look for it. Because um, that's that's a really amazing large scale tale about you know, future people and yeah, be very excited. Did, to do did he do Chucky as well? Wasn't oh, I don't think so. I was thinking that was the same person who did Kojo and all of those horror things. I'll, I'll have to but, look it up. Someone might be able to correct me. But Chucky rings a bell too. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's our recommendations. Uh, what was yours again, Phil? I wasn't listening. <laughs> No, I'm joking. The no, loop. I'm actually not. No, the loop. Not. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, the a strange loop. A, a strange loop and the midwitch cuckoos. There are recommendations. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. We certainly did, and we will catch you next time. This has been the Sirens of Audio episode 114, Randomoids 11, featuring the stories The Forbidden Time and Moonflesh, with our guest Mark Morris and your hosts Philip Edney and Dwayne Bunny. Theme music by Joe Kramer. Contact us or check out all our details at sirensofaudio.com. Drop us a line at sirensofaudio at gmail.com or drop us a comment on our socials or YouTube channel and let us know your thoughts on this or any of our episodes. Thanks for listening, audiophiles. We'll catch you next time.